Will you please turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1. You'll need a Bible to follow along. So these brothers have some and they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. It's marked for you at Habakkuk 1. And that Bible is our gift to you. Keep it. Bring it back with you each week. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. And over the next several weeks, we're going to continue our series in the book of Habakkuk. So you'll want that Bible for that as well. Today, continuing in Habakkuk chapter 1. It is a good prayer of God's people to ask him to send revival to his church and to our nation as a whole. As we look at the loose theology and even the outright heresy that's promoted in some evangelical circles, the immorality rampant outside the church, but also a lack of purity inside the church. With all of that, it's natural and good for God's people to ask Him for renewal from the Spirit of God in our churches and a turn to righteousness in our country. But what if God were to answer that good prayer by sending Iran or China to pound and to plunder the U.S.? That's what happened with Habakkuk. He had lived the earlier part of his life during a period of national revival. One of the rare kings of the nation, Judah, named Josiah, had implemented reforms within that nation. They'd even begun to clean out the temple and to reinstitute sacrifices to God. As we saw a few weeks ago, as they were cleaning out the temple, they found the word of God. And as it was read and proclaimed, revival broke out. But With the death of Josiah... The nation soon began to forsake the ways that had been established under his rule. So Habakkuk not only saw a period of national revival, but of national decline as well. And so this book begins with Habakkuk during that time of decline, crying out to God, How long, O Lord, must I call for help in verse 2 of chapter 1? But you do not listen. And so Habakkuk wanted God to do something. Two weeks ago, in our second message in this series, we saw in verses 5 through 11 that God answered his prayer by revealing what it is that God was going to do. God said, in effect, I have a plan and my plan is on schedule. And others are not going to determine my plan. And my plan includes everyone, even the hated Babylonians. I'm going to raise them up and they're going to march their war machine through the nation of Judah, and this wicked nation of Babylon will be a rod of chastisement in my hand as I deal with my chosen people, the nation of Judah. Well, to put that mildly, that was not what Habakkuk wanted to to hear. Habakkuk wanted God to do something that would turn the hearts of the people to God in a national revival, just as he had seen in his youth under the leadership of Josiah. But he did not want to hear about an evil nation from the north marching through their land, pillaging and looting them. And further, how could he fit together in his own mind what he knew about God on the one hand and what he knew about the Babylonians on the other? How could a holy God use such an unholy people to carry out his work? We encounter the same kind of thing in our own lives on a personal level. Suppose you lost your job because someone where you work was out to get you and misrepresented what you had done. We would think to ourselves, how could God let that 
happen. If you've experienced great tragedy in something like the death of a child or great turmoil in a broken home or great disappointment in some other kind of loss, you may well ask, doesn't God care? How could God allow this? So what do you do when what you know about God doesn't fit in with what you see around you? Well, we should do what Habakkuk did. When we don't understand what's going on, we should remind ourselves of what we know to be true. And we're going to see that today in the final verses of Habakkuk chapter 1. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his word. Our Father, we thank you that you have gathered us now. Quieting our hearts before you and with your word open in front of us. We ask you, Lord, to indeed speak. Speak to us from the word that is yours, that you have given in order to expose, reveal, make known who you are, who we are, what our situation is in a fallen world, and how we are to endure it, yea, to rejoice in it, because we know you and we know you're at work. Help us to see that anew today, and help us to live that out this coming week for your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, every week we have an outline for the message inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And you'll see that we say there that, first of all, when we're faced with difficult circumstances, we can't express our confidence in God. Verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, Habakkuk's complaint was, Why do you tolerate injustice and violence in Judah? And then God answered, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do it by way of using the Babylonians. So now Habakkuk is talking again. We're going to see in verses 12. And his complaint is, why are you going to use them as your instrument of judgment? Why are you going to use a people more unjust and more violent than your own people are? And as he thinks about that, as he thinks about the reality of his situation, but he also thinks about what he knows about God, the first thing that Habakkuk does and the first thing that we need to do is remind ourselves regarding who God is. And so I say in your outline, we have to remember the character of our God. And Habakkuk does that by addressing God as Lord in verse 12. And as you look at verse 12 and he says, Lord, there. Your translation probably shows the word Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It certainly shows it that way if you're using the New International Version, which is what we preach and teach from at CBC. That's the version of the Bibles that we hand out each week, so many, if not all of you, have that. Now, that's important because when you see the name Lord in all caps, it's a translation of a particular Hebrew name, For God, in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. There's another Hebrew name for Lord, which is not translated with all capital letters. We see both of those in a passage like Psalm number 97 that says, The mountains melt like wax before the, notice, all caps, Lord. Do we have that one, guys? Thank you. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the, and then notice, capital L, but small o-r-d, of all the earth. That word Lord that's all caps is a translation of the name of God, Yahweh. 
It's the personal name of God given to his people and by which he is known in relationship to them. And then the word Lord, capital L, and then small O-R-D is a translation of the title Adonai. It's a more general title for God and his ownership and mastery over all creation. So Psalm 97 verse 5 is saying the one who is owner and master of the entire earth is our God, Yahweh. God used this name, especially in his covenant with his people given through Moses. In Exodus chapter 6, God said to Moses, I am the Lord. Notice all caps. I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God almighty. But by my name, the Lord Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. I established my covenant with them and I have remembered my covenant. And I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So here with the formation of the nation in the covenant given to Moses, God is saying you are going to be my people and I am going to be your God and you are going to know me by my personal name, Yahweh. In the midst then of circumstances that Habakkuk does not understand, he immediately reminds himself of the relationship that God has with him and with his people in general. Because God has given his personal name to his people as an indication of his special relationship with him, with them, and because he has made promises to his people that he is honor bound to keep, that's why Habakkuk can say in verse 12, we will not die. Now, if you have the latest NIV, which is our giveaway Bible that some of you received today and have received in the past, you see that it says not we will not die, but you, the Lord, will not die. And so which is it? Most translations say we will not die. And in fact, in the NIV, you'll see where it says you will not die. There's actually a a footnote. It indicates that many manuscripts show you will not die. The context could indicate either, and that's why you have different translations. The Lord is referred to in verse 12 as everlasting, and so that's why the NIV goes with, you will not die. You will not die because you are everlasting. I'm going to talk about that word everlasting in just a bit. But the context also is about the Lord's covenant with his people, so it makes sense to say, we will not die. That is... We will not die out as a people because you've made a covenant with us that requires our survival and you, Lord, will keep your word. So in the midst of what he cannot understand regarding his circumstances, Habakkuk does what we should always do. We should remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are. God has not forgotten you in the midst of your situation If you're his child, that's why the Bible says the Lord, your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. We have that verse quoted in your New Testament as well in Hebrews chapter 13. He's not only the God with whom we have relationship, the one who will keep his promises to his people. Habakkuk also calls him in verse 12, my holy one. As I think about. What you, my God, are doing, Habakkuk says, I don't understand it precisely because of what I know about you. You're holy. 
What you're doing seems inconsistent with that. But even so, I know it's true. And I remind myself of the fact that it's true. That even though you've said you're going to do this thing that I don't understand, I still know these things about you, including that you are holy, you are morally pure, so that whatever you're going to do, it will ultimately be right because you are the standard of right. And in fact, God, the only reason I, Habakkuk, have a concept of right and wrong is because you've instilled that in all people. I would have no basis to claim what's right were it not for you giving me a sense of right. Have you ever thought of that? People would have no basis for complaining about what God does, complaining that things are not the way they ought to be if it was not first God who instilled in people that very sense of right and wrong. And so Abraham, when he pled with God to spare Sodom, he said, far be it from you to treat the righteous and the wicked alike. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer, of course, is absolutely yes. The Lord will always do right. In the midst of his confusion and his difficulty, Habakkuk reminds himself of who God is. He's the Lord with whom he and his people have this special relationship and for whom he is bound by his character to keep his promises. And this God is also the Holy One who is bound by his character to do right. And he is further, as Habakkuk says in verse number 12, my Rock. It's a word that evokes the strength and reliability of the Lord as the God of his people. And so we have a song that has a lyric that says, When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay on Christ, the solid rock I stand. Friends, this is only true for those who have this personal relationship with the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it says of God being the rock of his people, their rock is not like our rock. You see, only the people who know God and have this relationship with God know him as the stability that he is enduring in all circumstances. The rock, small r, of all other people is something that is not enduring, someone or something that will not last. And so we should express confidence in God, remembering his character, that he keeps his promises to his people, that he will do right because he is holy and he's dependable at all times and in all situations because he is our rock. And I say in your outline, we not only express confidence in God, remembering his character, but we must remember God's work in the past. In verse 12, Habakkuk asks rhetorically, Are you not from everlasting? And the expected answer, of course, is is yes. Now, I mentioned that I would say a few words about that word everlasting. Although that word may and at times does in your Old Testament refer to eternity, when speaking of the Lord, it most often refers to his preservation of his people. The things that he has done in the past, his works of antiquity, To preserve his people. And so, for example, Psalm 44, our ancestors have told us what you did in their days, in days long ago. In the midst of uncertainty and turmoil, we should remind ourselves and we should regularly remind the next generation of the goodness of the Lord. 
This necessity of being reminded of God's work in the past is underscored when you see often in the first part of your Bible, God saying things like, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He's reminding you of his works in the past on your behalf. Or I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so it brings to mind all that he did for and through them. You see, friends, your relationship with God is not just in the midst of what's going on now. But what he has brought you through in the past. One of the worst mistakes we can make is to focus ourselves only on what's happening in the now. In the midst of the difficulty. And forget the same God is on the throne who has brought us through all sorts of things in the past. He's at work now even though you may not see it. And faith for what you cannot see often comes from remembering what you've already seen. But we are easily forgetful, are we not? And so we should express confidence in God, remembering what kind of God he is, remembering his character, remembering his work in the past. And I say in your outline, acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Habakkuk can't believe that God is is doing this, that he's going to use the dreaded and barbaric and awful Babylonians to accomplish his purpose. But the doubts about that, that Habakkuk has, are they are believing doubts. That is, he can't process it given what he knows about God. But if God says it, then even with his concerns, Habakkuk still believes it. And so he says in verse 12, you, Lord have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. I can't believe you're doing this, but I believe you. And I know who you are. And I know you can do all things and nothing thwarts your plan. You have appointed and you have ordained this. What happens is ordained of the Lord. He ordains even the bad and the ugly in order to accomplish the good and the beautiful in his time. So there's nothing random and there's nothing out of control, though it often looks that way to us. It's the Lord who both gives and takes away. And the Lord is sovereign in both the giving and the taking. You remember the amazing words of Job. After all of the calamity that Job had suffered in a very short period of time, losing his possessions, ultimately losing his his family. And Job says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Upon the death of her husband, Jonathan Edwards, his wife Sarah wrote the following to one of their daughters. What shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. Think about that. Oh, that we may kiss the rod of God's discipline. Of the difficulty that God has chosen to bring. And oh that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives. And he has my heart. Oh what a legacy my husband and your father has left to us. 
We are all given to God, and there I am and love to be your ever-affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. When faced, friends, with difficult circumstances, we should express our confidence in God. But Habakkuk teaches us something else as well, that we can also, I say in your outline, express our concerns to God. That is, in the light of all we know to be true of God and who He is, and reminding ourselves of that first, and notice that, (laughs) that's the first thing you do, is you remind yourself of what you know about God and what you know to be true about God. And then you seek to try to fit in what's happening around you in what you know to be true about God. So we remind ourselves of that first, and then it's understandable that we would compare that to what's happening, and then seeing the inevitable disconnect, we cry out to the Lord to breach that chasm between what we know to be true and what it is we're seeing. And that's what Habakkuk does in verse 13. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? And this is the heart cry of God's people through the ages. Lord, we know things are not the way they're supposed to be. Please make them right and soon. When Habakkuk started his plea to the Lord back in verse 2 of chapter 1, he started it with, how long, Lord, must I call for help? And he was expressing a sentiment that the psalmist wrote centuries before. How long, Lord? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? The Bible itself ends. The entire Bible ends. Second to the last verse of the Bible ends with a prayer that the Lord would redeem his world soon. It quotes Jesus saying, I am coming soon, to which the Apostle John replies on behalf of all of us, come, Lord Jesus. The believer is saying that what I see is not consistent with what I know about you, Lord. This is not your character. It's not the way you designed your world originally to be. So how long until it's made right? So we can't express our concerns to God. These are believing concerns in light of what we know about him. Including, as I say in your outline, our concerns with God's plan. Habakkuk was astounded that God would use the likes of the Babylonians to accomplish his work. Since from Habakkuk's standpoint, I and we, the people of Judah, are more righteous than they are. And so in verse 13, he says, why are you silent while the wicked, that would be the Babylonians, swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That would be people like us. And that same kind of question has been asked throughout the centuries and in Scripture as well. Psalm 73. This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Jeremiah, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Or so it seems. Now notice in those passages the us and the them mentality that underlines all of it. We are better than they. Yes, I know, says Habakkuk, I was complaining in the beginning about how bad we are, but we're saints compared to those guys. And you're going to use them to judge and rule us? 
But God's using the Babylonians as a searing indictment of the lack of righteousness found among the people that are supposed to be the people of God. I mean, why is God using the Babylonians? The truth is he's using the Babylonians because there's not enough righteous people to do it within the nation itself. Just as God could not find ten righteous in Sodom when Abraham begged him to spare the city, God does not find righteousness among his people so that they can correct course. And so he resorts to using an ungodly pagan nation to correct those who claim to be God's people. His so-called righteous people were warned by the prophets about their corruption for over 150 years. They had been given an obvious example of what happens if you do not turn and repent from your ways. In that the ten northern tribes of God's people. Remember there are twelve tribes. The ten northern tribes had already been scattered. They had already been taken over by the Assyrians. A uh, hundred and some years before in 722 B.C. And so they were taken into exile. God's people had seen that. But still yet, even after all the warnings, they do not change their ways. If chastisement from a righteous source were possible, it would indeed have come among God's people. But there was not the righteousness to do it. Now you think about. You think about the people of God. Or those of us who claim to be the people of God today. Is there righteousness in the church of God today to correct what's happening? You see what's happening in the church. You see the prosperity gospel. You see the entertainment gospel. You see the frivolity that goes on in the name of worship. You see all of that happening. Is Are there enough righteous people among God's people to stand up and say it's not right? To change it from within? I fear that there are not. Of course, God can raise that up and God can bring revival at any time. And I pray that he does. But with the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, I say this. It's time for judgment to begin with God's household. Failure to self-evaluate and self-correct means that we'll be judged in some other way by someone or something. And I fear that today's evangelical church is going to be judged by God in one of those ways. Our dalliance with political power. Trading our birthright for the pottage of a seat at the king's table, as it were, is going to create a backlash that I fear will be fierce and deserved. Whenever we play the comparison game, friends, we should immediately be reminded of its foolishness. We can, and God's people have for centuries, pleaded with the Lord to make things right. But in so doing, we need to be aware of the tendency to evaluate ourselves as if they deserve judgment and we don't. We do deserve judgment. But here's, here's the blessed news. God has placed his ultimate judgment on God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. On our behalf. So we can express our concerns to God regarding his plan. And I say we can express our concerns with God's method. Verse 14. You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up 
in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. That is, you, Lord, have made all things and all people, but you have made us vulnerable to attack like fish in the sea with no leadership or organization to protect us. The wicked read people like the Babylonians that you're going to use to judge us. They take advantage and they plunder, and so they rejoice and they're glad. So Babylon is the happy fisherman with his catch here. One preacher said, notice the progression here. He moves from the hook to the net to the dragnet. We're familiar with fishing with a hook. In the Near East, they used a circular net with a drawstring. And so a skilled fisherman could fling it into the water and it would stretch itself out and lay on the water and it was weighted down with lead weights that kept it to the bottom of the river or lake. And then they would wait for a moment, pull the drawstring, and the net would enclose around whatever fish were there. So they were like the hook, which catches a single fish, and they were like the net, which encloses many fish. And then he says, Babylon's like a dragnet. That's a large net with small mesh designed to catch everything in its path as it's dragged through the body of water. And so what... Habakkuk is describing here is total domination, total tyranny. No nation would escape. In fact, when God raised up Babylon and her war machine rolled through Judah, Babylon did not stop until she had conquered the other world power that we know as Egypt. No one was safe from Babylon. And as a result of that, verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and he burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Habakkuk is saying to the Lord, the longer you allow this, the more the wicked will be confident in themselves and their abilities and their accomplishments, and they will worship those instead of you. You see in verse 16, what they're doing is they're giving sacrifices to their nets and to the things that Allow them the accumulation of all they have. In our day, it might be worshiping, in effect, our defense, our armaments. One has pointed out that one problem with mankind is we worship that which gives us what we want. We worship relationships, careers, possessions. The list can be endless. And Babylon was no different. They worshiped their strength. They sacrificed to gods of war because in war they received what they wanted. In war, the wealth of nations spilled over into the coffers of Babylon. The ancient historian Herodotus tells us that Babylon was the most beautiful city in the entire world. In Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar constructed a staged tower and he planted in it every kind of tree and flowering plant imaginable. It was called the hanging Gardens of Babylon, and it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In Babylon, the river Euphrates flowed underneath the city walls and through the heart of the city. Their craftsmen made ceramic tiles, and they completely tiled the bed of the river Euphrates. Any individual could stand on a bridge, look down into the clear waters of that river, and see shining back up through that water white tiles and blue artwork of every form of animal. According to historians, Babylon was undoubtedly one of the most beautiful cities in the entire world. They lived in luxury, enjoyed the choicest food, all because of the war machine that they were. And so they worshipped their own strength. 
We can express concerns to God regarding his plan, his method. And then lastly, with his patience. Verse 17. Is he, that is Babylon, is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? God, are you going to allow this in your patience to continue happening endlessly? None of this is redounding to your glory, God. So how long will you let it go on? Now fast forward 600 years. And you find God's people still asking the same kind of question. But this time it's a different set of pagan rulers. After the time of the Babylonians, God's people had been overtaken by the Greeks. And by the time of Jesus, the Romans. How long will you, God, let the pagans rule and rejoice and worship their ill-gotten gains and the means by which that they've achieved those ill-gotten gains? When Jesus came, his first followers wanted him to destroy the Romans and to establish his kingdom right then by force. The wicked have had too much freedom, God. End it now. God's ultimate demonstration, the depth of his compassion on the world, was not, at least not as yet, to destroy. That time is coming. But the ultimate demonstration of the depth of his compassion in the world was for God to come in the flesh as one of those fish in the sea that Habakkuk talked about. God does not directly answer the question, why did violent have so much freedom that's implied by Habakkuk? Instead, he demonstrates that their freedom extends even to the killing of the Son of God. And for Habakkuk, as well as followers of Christ like us, the enduring reality and answer are that the chosen of God are called to live righteously in a yet violent world and to do so without giving in to violence. Why? Because we trust the character of God. We trust that God is on the throne. We trust that God is at work. We know that God has been at work and we remind ourselves of that. So let me give you four things in conclusion that we should do as we deal with the kinds of problems that inevitably face us living in a fallen world. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones preached through Habakkuk. And when he preached on this passage, he gave these four things that we must do. The first is this, stop and think. Habakkuk was made to stop and think. How many of us, though, when faced with difficult circumstances, react rather than act? We need to be people who stop and we think. And then secondly, he suggested we need to restate basic principles. Stop and think. And then secondly, restate basic principles. We need to stop focusing on what we don't understand and focus on truths that are entirely beyond doubt. And so think about what it is we know about God, what it is we know about sin, what it is we know about fallenness in this world, what it is we know about what God is doing and is ultimately going to accomplish in his world. Restate basic principles. And then thirdly, apply those principles to your situation, to the problem at hand. 
So stop and think. Restate basic principles. Apply those to the problem. We have to view the thing, whatever's going on with us, whatever is confusing us, we have to view that from the perspective of what we know to be true for sure. Apply that now to your situation. And then lastly, if you're still in doubt, commit that problem to God in faith. State to God what you know to be true about God and commit that to Him. So as one has said, when you don't understand, when you can't see His hand, trust His heart. And that's what I've said for you in your take-home truth. When you can't trace God's hand, trust who He is. Trust His heart. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us, for allowing us to open your word and to be instructed therein. We thank you, Lord, for using your servants like Habakkuk to state what each of us feels as we go through the difficulties of living in a fallen world, difficulties that are sometimes brought on by our own sin, often brought on by just living in a sinful world. Lord, we ask with the saints of old, how long? And we long for the time that you are going to make your world right. Redeem it completely. The new heaven and the new earth. and No sin and no tears. And no death and no sickness. No violence. Lord, until that time, you have called us to live as people who, by faith, see your hand at work. We have seen your hand at work. And then we are called in the present to to remind ourselves that you indeed are continuing at work and you are accomplishing your plan. And so, Lord, help me, help us as your people. In the midst of all that you have allowed to come into our lives, represented in this room are a myriad of different circumstances, of different hardships. Help us to recognize that none of them are random, that you are indeed still sovereign, that that you are holy, that you are good all the time, that you are accomplishing your purpose for us in them. Help us to remember what we know, to praise you for what we know about you. And as a result, Lord, may we endure, may we express the joy of the Lord even in the midst of difficult circumstances, and indeed, may you accomplish your good work in us. We will give you the praise and the glory for all that you accomplish. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.